Now, as I mentioned, and most of you probably already know, I'm the worship leader here. In a previous life, I was an actor. So I do have a flair for the dramatic. However, it's not over-dramatizing it today to say that we are diving into a topic of life and death. The stakes really are that big. And uh, I have to confess, and I think I'm, hope I'm in the right place for that. After walking through this deep, critical portion of scripture, I'm going to have to decompress. And so how do I plan on doing that? I'm really glad you asked. I'm going to hop in my car and I'm going to drive to one of my favorite places on earth, Culver's Frozen Custard and Butter Burgers. <laughs> Ever heard of it? <laughs> I absolutely love Culver's. I'm going to put a disclaimer, Culver's to my knowledge, not a sponsor of this message or of Avalon Gospel Church in any way. Uh, sorry, Pastor David. I say this of my own accord. If there were no financial or physical consequences, I would eat a double bacon butter burger, deep fried cheese curds, and a concrete mixer for every meal. <laughs> now, I'm not a scientist or a dietitian, but I'm pretty sure if I lived that out in reality, it would not be well with my soul or my digestive system for very long at all. Well, a few years back, I was challenged by my brothers-in-law, which is kind of what uh, brothers-in-law do, while visiting my wife's side of the family on a hot summer day, we sat around and we thought, oh, what could give us reprieve from the hot summer sun? Frozen custard. Easy decision, right? During that time, I expressed how I could just live off of custard. I could eat, so, I could eat custard all day long. So just to entertain the thought, they said, well, how many concrete mixers do you think you could eat in one sitting? I said, daylight today, are you kidding me? Five, five of them. They looked at each other and grinned. Oh, oh, how long do you think that would take you? Yeah, challenge. Uh, without hesitation, uh, an hour or less, as I remember, I think I doubled down that it, no, no more than an hour it would take me. So that if you've ever seen the Grinch, you know how that grin all of a sudden just from ear to ear, that's what happened amongst them. And they turned to me and I believe, if I remember correctly, they said in unison, prove it, prove it. <laughs> So off to Culver's we went, and from behind the counter were pulled five of the largest concrete mixers I'd ever seen in my life. I thought I was being uh, pranked. The containers didn't even have the Culver's logo on there, which I thought was a little suspicious. <laughs> Whether it was my gluttonous appetite for frozen custard, or my pride, or maybe a concrete mixture, if you will, of the two, <laughs> terrible. I was determined to prevail. So I sat down, and in the first 15 minutes, I made my way through two of these things. So if you're doing the easy math in your head, I am clearly outpacing the goal. You know, we should have gotten eight of these things. I get halfway through the third one, and I hit a wall, and I suddenly realize I've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> I traded 15 minutes of cold, creamy, sugary bliss for an afternoon of the most terrible stomachache that I've ever experienced. Uh, pride had truly cometh before what I would describe politely as digestive destruction. <laughs> 
and there's proof because part of today is about humility. We have a photo that my brothers-in-law, again, were nice enough to take here. Uh, so this is me halfway through number three. Uh, and notice, I'm wearing a shirt that says, so worth loving because God knew I would need the emotional support and reminder that day. Uh, so not a proud day. Okay, what's the point? Why do you need to know about that embarrassing part of my life's journey? Well, what this points to, following the desires of our flesh often leads to some degree of destruction. And as we leverage into that life and death scale that I mentioned before, we see throughout scripture that truly finding life in Jesus' name, which happens to be our theme for this entire year as we make our way through the book of John, it requires us to put ourselves and the desires of our flesh to death. And as we'll read, as we transition into the text for today, self-sacrifice instead of self-serving is the way of Jesus. But how often can that truly be said of us? And while we ground ourselves into that question, into that thought, I want to start with a word of prayer, and then we'll get into the text for today. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for another opportunity to learn more about who you are, to learn more about the amazing love that you have for us. God, a love so great that you would send your only son to take on human form to be the ultimate atonement, the sacrificial lamb laid down his life that we may have a path to eternal life. God, I pray that as we draw near to the truth and the light of your word, that as we'll read in the text, we may become children of light. That we can go forward and spread that light to a world of darkness that so desperately needs it. Help us to learn how to take up our crosses today and follow you. Amen. Amen. All right, now if you want to take out your Bibles, your Bible apps, we are in the book of John still. We're in uh, chapter 12, and we're going to be starting with verse 20. So as you're turning there, we've, you know, book of John all year, right? And John, who gives us a unique perspective into the person and the work of Jesus as Jesus' beloved disciple. And that may seem like an ego-driven flex by John uh, to title himself Jesus' beloved. After all, this is the same disciple who made sure to point out after Jesus' resurrection that he beat Peter to the empty tomb. He said both of them were running, but make no mistake, the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So it wasn't a race or anything, but if it would have been, I was number one. However, the close relationship between John and Jesus is well documented throughout Scripture. Uh, John was one of the three disciples present at Jesus' transfiguration. In a few days here, from the cross, Jesus is going to speak to John and charge him with taking care of his own mother. So it does provide an intimate look into the work of Jesus. And it's filled with meaningful and, from John, often entertaining commentary. So for those who may not have been with us last week, maybe you're here for the first time, what's going on as we get into the text? Where are we? I'll set the stage a little bit. It's Palm Sunday. So it is the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on a donkey. He has traveled from Bethany over the Mount of Olives, and awaiting him are people waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna! Because they are expecting him to establish his kingdom and reign in glory 
which he is going to do, it just doesn't look the way a lot of them are imagining it's going to look. And we'll get into more on that in a bit. So let's start, take a chunk at a time, start with verse 20 here in chapter 12. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. And Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So people from all over Israel and beyond are here celebrating the Jewish Passover. And among those people are these Greeks. And we don't get a ton of extra information on them, but what we do know is that they are interested in talking with, or more accurately translated, interviewing Jesus. They want to sit down with him. So Philip and Andrew bring this request to Jesus, as we imagine they've done several times before. So they go to Jesus, hey, Jesus, what's up? There are these Greeks here. They would like to talk with you. Jesus replies, seemingly from way out of left field, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So Philip and Andrew have to be like, whoa, where did that come from? Right? I mean, what, a, what a thing to say. In other words, Jesus is saying the time for sitting down like that, the time for these casual conversations is over. There's something much bigger happening now. Jesus is reframing the perspective of, of what's going on. And he uses a term for himself that's familiar and significant when he says the son of man. What is the significance there? Well, I want to break down a couple of solid definitions and I want to draw to your attention how they're about to intersect at the cross. Son of man, as we, the scripture reading for, for today was Daniel 7. Ezekiel, Daniel, we see son of man brought up. And in Daniel's vision, as we just read, he sees the end time vision, one like a son of man coming on the clouds, approached the ancient of days, God the Father, and was led into his presence. And then this part may seem familiar to you. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. So Jesus is foreshadowing the fulfillment of this prophecy. He calls upon this prophecy elsewhere when he declares, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So we see Son of Man, the mighty judge, seated at the right hand of the Father, right? On the other hand, throughout Scripture in the New Testament specifically, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, as a suffering servant. When he says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He would say also in Matthew 8, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Pointing to the fact that Jesus gave up his heavenly home where he belonged to come here to take on all humility, suffering, and sacrifice. He never belonged here. And Jesus is going to say as much in front of Pilate in a few days, where he's going to establish his kingdom, referring to himself as the Son of Man in a statement that would ultimately seal his own death sentence. So now the suffering servant and the mighty judge 
are about to come together. That suffering servant is going to experience the ultimate suffering, the ultimate sacrifice of laying down his life to cross over into this glory. And I'll point out that one is necessary for the other. The humanness and humility of Jesus as this suffering servant was necessary to usher in that glory. That was part of the whole point. You see, Jesus was the ultimate example of what God had always intended for mankind to be. The perfect man. And that's why only he was able to pay the price for the sins of the entire world. You know, for months, for years here, Jesus has been telling people to chill out. It's not time yet. I'm not going to reveal myself yet. The hour has not yet come. Now it is. Now is the time to be glorified. An epic statement after much suspense. Yet, so many people had this confused. What's this glory that Jesus is talking about? Again, many are anticipating he's going to establish his kingdom right here. He's going to march in and remain forever to rule. An everlasting Messiah. That's what they're expecting. They're not expecting a dying Messiah. Many of them would like to see a king crowned and, and lifted up in, in power and status, not lifted up on a cross. Well, Jesus knows the confusion there, of course, and he attempts to paint a picture of what glory actually looks like. So let's go through our next portion of scripture, starting with verse 24. Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Jesus uses this depiction of a kernel of wheat to signify that this glory is not for himself. He did not come here seeking personal glory. He could have, right? And many people would have. But if he had held on to that glory, held on to that light for himself, he would have kept the entire rest of the world in darkness. Without his self-sacrifice, there is no fruit, or in his depiction, no rich harvest of grain. He's showing his obedience to the Father here, to follow him to the end, even to the point of death. And in this way, he sets the example for us. He's going to deny the temptation to bring glory to himself. He's going to deny the temptation to flee the cross altogether, which he could have done, so that he can bring forth salvation for us, for all those who put their trust in him. And in response to his coming sacrifice, he reiterates the cost of following him. Self-sacrifice over self-serving and self-preservation. Talks about loving your life here and then losing it later. And that's not intuitive for us. That's not easy. We like ourselves. We like the things that we have. This is part of the reason that the rich man who came to Jesus has said, what must I do to be saved? Jesus said, well, it's pretty easy. You just go and sell everything that you have and follow me. He walked away sad because that was more than he was willing to give up. So if you're a financial analyst here, a cost-benefit analysis, right? The cost is great. What's the benefit? 
if we go against the way of our flesh? Well, the promise here is that just as Jesus is going to be faithful to the end to bring salvation for us, those who are faithful to following Jesus will inherit the kingdom of God. My Father will honor the one who serves me. And Jesus can talk about death bringing glory because he knows that's what he's about to do, that his life is the seed that is about to enable him to save the lost. However, just because Jesus knows what must be done to see his mission through, he doesn't fully delight in what's to come. He's fully human. He's going to feel everything you or I would feel. He's also the Son of God and knows what's coming. So uh, we go to verse 27 here, and we read, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I'm not going to attempt some kind of a God voice here. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And here again, John comments, he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So his soul is troubled. It's translated from the Greek word terasso, which more specifically means to be physically and spiritually agitated to be stirred up, to be unsettled. So what exactly is troubling Jesus? Maybe the most apparent would be the extreme amount of physical anguish he's about to experience. Again, imagine that you had the foresight to know the amount of torture, the agonizing death that you were going to experience, and if you had a choice, would go through with it anyway. But it's more than that. Jesus is about to feel the weight of the sins of the entire world on his shoulders, not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually. That's why that translation is so powerful. He's about to act as the sacrificial lamb, and in doing so, he's about to experience an isolation from his father he's never known before. An isolation that's going to have him crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Exactly how troubling is that to Jesus? Well, in a few days leading up to his arrest, we're going to hear about him praying in the Garden of Gethsemane for this cup to be taken away, sweating what are described as drops of blood. Now, we don't know overtly if that is literal or not. We do know that it's possible. In rare cases of extreme emotional distress. Uh, capillaries in your forehead can burst. Mixed with your sweat glands, you can sweat what are drops of blood, which certainly would have made sense for the amount of anguish that Jesus the man was experiencing here. But despite being troubled, he's not going to pray to be spared. He's not going to run away. Not as he wills, but as his father wills. He takes solace in the promise that his father is going to hold true and bring glory through this sacrifice. He calls out, Father, glorify your name. And then we get this 
thunderous response. God speaks in a way we've read about only a couple of other times here in the New Testament at Jesus' baptism, at his transfiguration. So a divine affirmation that God is going to be faithful to what he has promised. And even though the crowd doesn't seem to know exactly what was said, they described it as having thundered or an angel spoke. They, they knew something significant had happened. So there's a divine affirmation that the crowd experiences here. And then Jesus gets real and he gets urgent. Now is the time for judgment on this world. The prince of this world, Satan, is going to be driven out. That's only the beginning of a series of Satan getting dethroned and defeated. Several rounds of that. And John, again, is great at pointing out what Jesus means or what this text actually means for us. He points out that when Jesus talks about being lifted up, there's nothing figurative about this. In a few days, Jesus is going to be laid down on a cross, on a plank of wood, have his hands nailed there, and when he's lifted up from the earth, that means he's being physically lifted up to initiate the process of death by crucifixion. But again, the, the crowd has an inability to understand exactly what's being said, even after all of this. So let's finish this portion of Scripture. Verse 34 the crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. And when he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. This is God's word. So the inability for the crowd to grasp what is being said, what is truly to come, even though Jesus has covered it pretty thoroughly, and specifically tied this to points of prophecy that many of them should have known. These Pharisees, these teachers of the law, should have been connecting the dots. There's no time to keep breaking this down. That's not what Jesus does here. He focuses in, here's the point, here's what you need to know. The light and the darkness. He urges them to put their faith in him, the light, while he's still there. Because he knows as humans, it's not going to be any easier to do that when he is gone. The light and the darkness. Life and death. You know, you can't deal with a much more significant contrast than these things, right? It's one or the other. And that's part of the point. There's no lukewarm or half decisions. Uh, this is purposefully polarizing in, in this way. In response to the ultimate sacrifice that only Jesus, the Son of Man, the perfect man, could make to atone for our sins, now we're left with a decision. The most important decision that we will ever make. 
The author A.W. Tozer puts it well when he writes, and I'll read verbatim. We must do something about the cross. And one of two things only we can do. Flee it or die upon it. If we're wise, big if, we'll endure the cross and despise its shame for the joy that is set before us. The cross will cut into our lives where it hurts the worst, sparing neither us nor our carefully cultivated reputations. It will defeat us and bring our selfish lives to an end. Only then can we rise in fullness of life to establish a pattern of living wholly new and free and full of good works. Wow. So today, what will you choose? What are you choosing today? If we choose to die upon the cross with Jesus, how are we actively crucifying our flesh today? How are we denying ourselves in preparation for the coming judgment of the Son of Man? Now, let's be clear on this. This gospel is truth. You won't find a more accurate text. And I'll, I have a, a reference photo here that will pull up. I hope. No, that's okay. This is not a sketch of a rainbow done by my daughter Olivia, who's five, although that'd be pretty amazing. This is a depiction of the cross references you'll find in the Bible. Now, you'll see 63,799 cross references. About 40 authors collaborated on this over about 1,500 years on three different continents. And the references, the prophecies, aren't ambiguous either. Did you know that the day of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was prophesied 400 years before it happened? To the day. So when Jesus tells us he's coming back again to judge, we better believe that. And that may come sooner than you think. So, how are you doing in your response to the cross? I'll leave you with three ways in which we can follow the cross and find everlasting life in Jesus' name. And I'm going to warn you, the prince of this world is going to hate each and every one of them. I have three S words, no need to cover your ears, only Satan is going to view these as curse words. <coughs> Number one, sacrifice the self. In a society filled with, if it feels good, do it. We must choose to sacrifice the desires of our flesh. In scripture we read, straight is the gate, narrow is the path that leads to eternal life. Why do we think that is? We also read the warning that if our arm causes us to sin, cut it off. You'd be better off living without that arm than to risk losing your entire soul for eternity, right? Now, I brought up a silly example of my flesh leading me to extreme bodily discomfort. However, we could substitute in any number of vices 
that are keeping us from obedience and devotion to God. So I would encourage you right now to think about one thing that you are prioritizing, whether you realized it before or not, over taking up your cross. It could be a love of money or possessions. It could be a struggle with, with lust or anger. It could be an addiction to a substance or an addiction to something as seemingly harmless as social media. Now again, when you begin the process of denying your flesh something you've been letting it indulge in, you're going to experience withdrawal. And guess who's going to be there? Satan is going to be there using every vile tool we've ever seen him use, whether it was Adam or Jesus himself. The prince of this world is going to make you question what God's word, what this truth really says. Did it really say that? Surely he's not going to mind just one more small encounter with whatever that struggle or that vice is. I want to encourage you not if, but when that becomes difficult, because it will. Realize that it was never the expectation for us to do that alone. So the second S word, surrender. Surrender to God. Cast your burden onto Christ. Let him carry the yoke. When we let go of what we think we can handle, what we think we can control, that's when God can come in and overcome the lies of the evil one. That's where we draw strength from him. Isaiah 40 tells us that even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. The third and final point and S word for today. Submit to his ways. And again, as he had done so often, Jesus sets the example. Not my will, but yours be done. Father, glorify your name. Perfect submission, right? Jesus was obedient to the will of his Father to the end, to the point of an agonizing death here on earth. But again, we have this hope. And I like the way Paul states it in Philippians when he expresses the promise that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God will not forsake us in this fight. He will hold true to his promise. Yes, we deny ourselves personal glory we deny ourselves temporary pleasure for the sake of everlasting glory that awaits us. So in closing, there's no halfway in any of this. A few weeks back, Pastor David brought up the parable of the sheep and the gate that Jesus brought up. You can't ride the fence on this. You're in or you're out. So I want to ask, open-endedly, what's true for you today? Are you all in for Jesus? And are you sure? 
sacrifice, surrender, submit. These three S words that are like curse words to your flesh and to Satan. The prince of this world hearing this right now knows he's got to work a lot harder. If we're taking up that cross, if we're really clinging to that light, I say bring it on. Don't you? You know, who's fighting our battles? As we sing so often, who does the battle belong to? If our God is for us, who can stand against us? Nobody. If we put our trust in serving Christ, we bring light to the darkness in our lives, and then as we just read in Scripture, we can turn around as children of the light and bring it to those wandering around in darkness around us. That's what we mean when we talk about the transformative nature of the gospel. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so deeply encouraged by the promises of your word. God, I pray for a self-examination of ourselves and where we stand, what our foundation truly is, whether we feel firm, whether we feel shaky, whether we don't really know where we stand at all. God, whatever is true for each of us today, I pray that we would draw near to you, have that cement poured at our feet, reach out, gain that knowledge, that fellowship, whatever it takes to cling to the truth of your word so that we can gain that light and magnify it out for all to see. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity today. Pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.